All right. What a terrific message that sins can be forgiven. I don't know about you, but I am a pretty good sinner. And uh, I need a deep, far-reaching kind of forgiveness. And uh, I love the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven. However, to say that implies that there is a factor there that is kind of limited to Jesus. And it kind of raises the issue, if we have to be forgiven and forgiveness comes by Jesus, is that really fair? And so I'm asking and I'm hoping to answer the question today, is God fair with this whole system of dealing with man's fallenness and sinfulness by the work of Christ and the forgiveness that that can bring. And, of course, that assumes a position that most in America uh, hold to, and that is that good people go to heaven. Uh, Almost everywhere across this country, you can take a little poll, just stand out on a corner somewhere and ask people, you know, what's what's necessary to go to heaven? And uh, the overwhelming majority will say, well, you got to be pretty good. Good people go to heaven. And even a lot of Christians tend to believe that. We talked about this thoroughly last week. So I'm just going to briefly make reference to it before we move into what we're talking about today. And that's this. By a recent survey, about 87% of Americans believe there's a heaven. Almost the same number of people think they're going there. You think you're going there? How do you know? Well, when you ask people, how do you know, almost always they reply, well, I try to be a pretty good person. And basically that concludes good Christians would go to heaven, good Muslims would go to heaven, good Buddhists, good Hindus, good non-religious people would go to heaven. And what I tried to press you for last week, and if you're interested in that talk and you weren't here, uh, CDs are available later, you can check it out online, Basically, I contended that's a pretty unexamined way of thinking about how we're going to prepare for the afterlife. We only have this one and only life to take care of right now. And then there's this afterlife that we've got to be totally prepared for. And I think it deserves a little more examination than just a default. I'm kind of thinking good people go to heaven because what we pointed out is. Uh, There's a lot wrong with that kind of thinking. And one of those is we don't know what good is. We can't have a common agreement, a common definition. What is good? This group over here will tell you good is this. That group over there will tell you that good is that. And so there's not even, you know, a standardized sense of what is good. And more than that, we don't know how we're doing. How good am I on whatever standard I'm adopting? Uh, How good do I have to be? Do I have to be 51% good? A little more good than bad? Do I have to be 70? 80? 90? Surely God wouldn't look for 95% goodness. And so there's all kinds of problems with this mindset that says good people go to heaven. More than that, if you uh, pay any attention to what Jesus said and what Jesus taught in his day, He did not teach that good people go to heaven. In fact, Jesus taught that bad people go to heaven. He told all the good people, you are not good enough and you will never be good enough. And he told the bad people, you're obviously not good enough either. 
But if you turn to me and repent, I'll forgive you. And you can be right with God and you can go to heaven. So what we learn from Jesus is that forgiven people go to heaven, not good people. And that brings us back to the question of the morning. Is that fair? Is Christianity fair? I mean, you're basically saying when you contend forgiven people go to heaven and forgiveness comes by Jesus. Everybody else may be wrong about that. Is everybody else wrong? Is Christianity just too narrow and unfair? It's a great question. And if you've kind of thought about it a time or two, but not pressed down into it, I'm going to invite you for these next few minutes to just kind of press down and think a little bit harder and a little more deeply about that. Because you see, when you start talking about forgiven people are the ones that go to heaven, you, you have to say, okay, so what happens to all the people that never hear about Jesus? What happens to all the people that are outside of the sphere or the influence of Christianity. And that's a hard question. Because the fact of the matter is, if you grew up in a Christian home, the likelihood, the odds are in your favor that you might also follow Christ. I did not grow up in a Christian home. And so the fact that I had a friend care enough to tell me about Christ, I, I count as an immeasurably great gift. But that likelihood was even greater because I live in America. And so... What about the fairness factor for those who are outside of the sphere of influence and the communication about Christ, the gospel, forgiveness, and the way to go to heaven? I'm going to try to unpack a little bit of that. But before I do, let me kind of seed your thought with this truth. Because when we raise the question, is Christianity unfair?, there are some of us that would go, you know, I'd really like to believe in Christianity. I really would like for it to be the Jesus way and I could have forgiveness by him and I'll follow him. Kind of like the people that just testified with the baptism. But it just strikes me as unfair and therefore it kind of strikes me as maybe not true. And what I want to contend for today is that we cannot confuse fairness with truth. Something can be very unfair and true at the same time. And so to the question of, is Christianity not fair? If you mean by fair, all people have an equal opportunity to hear and to hear compellingly and to hear clearly and to hear in an environment where you can think about it, talk about it, examine it, not be prejudiced and biased and so on like that. I mean, how many environments are there like that? I've already told you, I, I didn't have as good a shot at coming to Christ as a whole lot of other people. Many others have less of a shot coming to Christ than I did. And so if you mean by fairness that kind of definition, you'd have to say, no, it's, it's not totally fair. But here's the real question. Is it true? Is it true? See, the current system that we operate under right now, 
is not the original system. You know this. You know about that whole Garden of Eden story and Adam and Eve and the first of uh, those who were created into this world and how they were in this kind of paradise situation and they had equal opportunity and fairness about everything. They got to know God the same kind of way. They got to know him to the same depth. They got to walk with him through the cool of the day. Uh, There was all this tremendous equal level fairness everywhere all the time. And then, you know, they ate a forbidden fruit. They rebelled. They initiated a coup against God. And when they did that, fairness went out the door. Fairness was over at that point. Because of sin, unfairness was ushered into this world, and God didn't do it. People did it. And I already understand, friend. Some of you are going, oh, Scott, you're going to try to let God off the hook by a couple of naked people in the garden I'm not even sure ever lived? I understand that. And we're not so much trying to talk about letting God off the hook as we are trying to illustrate the point that we are sinful, busted, broken people that do busted, broken things. And that brings about a system that is unfair. And everyone in here has suffered because of the unfairness of someone else. You didn't do it. You didn't have anything to do with it. But because of how they did what they did, you suffered the unfairness, right? Everybody in here has had that. My dad decided to have multiple affairs with other women. He absolutely blew up his marriage to my mother and thus blew up our family. And through the formative years of my life, he never made one positive deposit in my life or my brother's life. That is unfair. But it's true. It's reality. It's what happened. And if we had the time, I could walk through here and we could hear story after story where you suffered something because what somebody else did and it was totally unfair for you. And the thing is, we have come to grips with and for those of us that are parents, we are constantly trying to help our children contend with the fact that life is not fair. And that's not just a theological reality. Life's not fair academically. Everybody ever have a time where you got mishandled, mistreated by somebody in the faculty? Life's not fair athletically. Some have more athletic ability than others. Some have better coaches than others. Don't even get us started talking about referees and officials. Right? (laughs) Athletics are not fair. Health is not fair. Some of you are able to consume large amounts of food and you never show it. And I have to deal with that in my heart all the time. Because some of us can consume just a little less food and we show it all the time. So life's not fair with health. It's not fair with athletics. It's not fair with academics. It's not fair financially. It's not fair in the business world. He got that promotion that I was in line for. Life is not fair. And that's a human reality brought on by human sinfulness. Christianity 
in the system that we have in this world, a very unfair system, Christianity is the fairest system available. Now, let me just highlight a couple of realities for us, okay? Because as I'm saying this, man, I've been where you are. I've asked some of these questions. Some of this stuff still bangs around in my head. And here's one of the realities that I think we need to come to grips with. We tend to overestimate our ability to evaluate what's fair. Well, I've been living around here 40 years. I've seen a lot. I kind of know what's right, what's wrong. God, that's fair. That's not fair. And, And we actually think we can get to a point where we can tell eternal, omniscient God, this is what's fair. That's not fair. So just imagine this. Imagine that you work for a company that has hundreds of employees. And on a certain day, your CEO calls for a meeting of all the employees. All the employees come into one room, right? And everybody's handed out documents when you come into the room. And you begin to look at the document that you've been handled, been handed, and you see this is a payroll. And all of a sudden, you have before you the payroll of the entire company. You can see what everybody makes. And so you immediately look for your own name so you can give thanks for what you make, right? (laughs) Or not. No, I'm, I'm scouring the thing to see what Joe and Bill and Sam and Fred, what do they make? Because I want to see if it's fair. I want to see how it compares to what I make. Right? And so then the CEO comes in and he says, I know you're wondering why we called this meeting today. And here's what the situation is. Here's what the bottom line has been for us this past year. And this is what we have for salaries in the coming year. This much. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to decide together what everybody should make what everybody should earn as a salary. And so we're going to break you up into little groups, and we're going to let you talk about this, and who deserves what pay, and it has to fit within this one package of money that we have, and nobody leaves until we finish this little project. How long would that take for us to decide what's fair for everybody else and and certainly to decide what's fair for me, right? Listen, I come from, uh, between my wife and I, we have two sons, and when they were smaller and lived in the home, we couldn't decide what was fair between the four of us, right? I mean, we'd go on a vacation and we'd try to decide what we're going to do this afternoon and we'd have four different ideas. We way overestimate our ability to determine what's fair. And the second thing I want to say is that we way underestimate the significance of our sin. Now, one of the reasons why we do that is because we tend to look around at the people that are around us. And as we kind of self-evaluate, we think, "Eh, I'm a pretty good person. As a matter of fact, see if this has ever happened to you. If it hasn't, you know it's happened to somebody close to you. Where you begin to talk about somebody 
and it's in a kind of a critical way and you've been sideways with them. And I can't believe he did this and he did that. And he just doesn't know how to handle that. And I, I think he may have some kind of mental deficiency at this point because he can't even think about it. You know, after a while, you've been putting down, putting down, putting down, putting down to such a point. You're going, oh, I better clarify something. Now, I'm not perfect. Just in case you were wondering. And. We try to clarify. We've put this guy down so far, but I don't want you to think that I'm perfect. What's the next word? But. And we continue on in our assessment and our evaluation of the poor guy. Right. Well, friends, that's a very accurate statement. We are not perfect. We are far from perfect. And we don't even want to begin to look at some of the people that have lived on this planet and see how we compare to the Mother Teresas and the Billy Grahams and all that kind of thing. Because if they ain't good enough, we're in trouble. And by the way, they're not good enough. See, what the reality is, is that there is a God who is 100% Pure holiness and righteousness. And that is the standard. And when we begin to look at our life in comparison to God, friend, we pale badly in comparison. And He's the standard. We underestimate. The significance of our sin. I'm going to talk more about that next week. And what is the necessity for Jesus dying over sin? And the bottom line, just a preview, is this. We don't get how profound sin is. So... Let me just try to unpack that a little bit, just in a couple of minutes, in this kind of way. When you just get to look at one jigsaw puzzle piece, how difficult is that to kind of comprehend the whole thing that that jigsaw puzzle fits into? I mean, depending on the size and what placement that jigsaw puzzle piece has, you can maybe get a a fair idea or absolutely no idea. Of what that puzzle piece means. Let me give you two puzzle pieces that have to do with what we're talking about right now. One of those happens near the end of uh, Jesus' life. And we were commemorating this Friday night in our Good Friday service. Uh, I want you to reflect back to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is praying intensely because he knows he's about to go to the cross and he knows he's about to die an atoning death for all of us. And it's very intense. In fact, the scripture says it's almost like he's sweating drops of blood. It's like capillaries are just bursting all over him because it's so intense. And John, one of his good friends and one of the disciples and the one who wrote the gospel of John, tells us in his gospel that they came out of this period of prayer because these temple guards came to arrest Jesus. Right? So here come the guards, and they come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says to them, Who is it you're looking for? 
And the guards say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, remember what he says? I am he. Now, for those of you that know your Old Testament, and you remember the whole Moses story, and, you know, talking to God at the burning bush, and he says, you know, God, what is your name? God says, my name is I am. And so in that moment, Jesus is making this statement of divinity. When the guards say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes, I am. And John says, the minute Jesus uttered, I am, all of the soldiers fell down. They hit the ground at just that little announcement. And here's my point. In that moment, friends, I think we had just a little peek, just a little glimpse of the glory of the holiness, of the righteousness of God. Now, Jesus had been encasing all of this in a physical body. But in that moment, there's just this little glimpse. And he goes, I am. Boom! Everybody falls to the ground. Now, let me take you to one more puzzle piece that begins to bring together this portrait of who God is and what he's like. John also wrote another book called The Revelation, right? Last book of the Bible. And in The Revelation... John tells about this time where he's in prayer, and God begins to bring this vision to him. Of course, it's out of this vision that he writes the whole book. But as he begins to have this vision, he begins to see Jesus in more of his glory. And the book of Revelation says that when John, even through a vision begins to see more of the glory of God, boom, he hits the ground prostate before God. And now this is a friend of Jesus. This is a guy that's gone fishing with Jesus. This is a guy that has uh, sat at campfires with Jesus. He has known Jesus, you know, as long as anybody. But all of a sudden he sees a side of Jesus he's never seen a glorious side, a righteous side, a holiness side, and it just slays him. My point is, we, we overestimate our ability to determine what's fair and what's not fair. We underestimate the significance of our sin. But back to the question, is all this fair? Is all this true? No, it's not fair. Yes, it's true. It's not fair that sinless, glorious Jesus died for your sin. That's not fair. It's not fair that the punishment we deserve was put on Jesus. It's not fair that the righteous one should die for the unrighteous. Oh, there is so much that's unfair. But it's true. Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God shows His love for us in that while we are sinners, we didn't get our act cleaned up, we didn't get good enough, we couldn't get good enough, while we were busted, He died for us. 
That's not fair. That's mercy and grace. Mercy is withholding from us what we deserve. We deserve condemnation, judgment, and punishment. Mercy withholds that. Grace is giving us something we don't deserve. Forgiveness. Life. Hope. Peace. Joy. Meaning. Purpose. I could go on and on. It's not fair. But it is mercy. It is grace. Is Christianity narrow and unfair? Yes, it is. But it is eternally better than fair. It's mercy and grace. Yeah, but what about those people that you know may never hear and, and may not have that opportunity? I don't know. But here's what I do know. The God who loved us enough to give us His Son in such a brutalized, sacrificial way cares more about these people out here that never hear than you care, than I care. All this isn't fair, but it's better than fair. It's mercy. We don't want Him to be fair with our sins. We want mercy. We don't want Him to be fair with what we deserve. We want grace. And He says, I come to give you mercy and grace. And that calls for a decision. What will you do with what we've just talked about? How will you think about that? How will you process that? How will you respond to that? And so I want to clearly give you an invitation. It's not my invitation. It's an invitation that God gives us through the gospel. Will you trust in Jesus to forgive you and save you from sin? Trust means that you don't just, you don't just lean on Him a little bit. You don't just kind of you know, look at that whole gospel thing and hope about it. Trust means that you just put your entire life on Jesus. You count on Him. You bet your entire life. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Will you trust Him? That's a legitimate, not a rhetorical question. Now, you heard it mentioned earlier about this little connection card that's attached to your program. On the back side of that, there's a space that says, I want to know Christ. I want to have that kind of relationship with Christ. Why don't you check that? As a step of faith and trust and commitment to Him today. That will come directly to my attention. I'll be praying for you and I'll follow up with you any way that you want to talk about it or meet about it or whatever. But like you heard in a testimony earlier today, friends, this is a divine appointment. God knew you'd be here today. God knew what we would be talking about today. And if something is stirring in you about that, He's inviting you to draw near and have life in Christ. Will you? And if you're willing to trust Him in that kind of way, would you do like our friends have done this morning? And would you make that public? Not today, but at some point in the near future. Say, yes, I'm going to follow Him and I will unashamedly let others know about that. I, I will take that step of baptism. And 
Will you follow him as a participating member in his church? It doesn't have to be this church. We would love for it to be this church for you. But friends, the church, and I don't even have time to unpack this, is so beloved by God, he calls it the bride of Christ. He has all kinds of plans for your life in the community of faith he calls church. And that's not as somebody that just kind of drops in and drops out, but that's somebody that is a participating, connected, engaged person in his church. Is that a step that you need to take? There's spaces on that connection card if you want to indicate anything about any of that. You can, and it will come to my attention, and we'll respond to you in ways that you're comfortable. Now, if you'd allow me, I want to pray for you and ask God to bless you. Let's pray. Lord, you know how grateful I am that each of these are in the house today. You knew they would be here. Thank you for allowing us to talk about such eternal things. And I pray that your spirit is stirring in us in ways that draw us near to you. Would you bless us today with mercy and grace in Jesus' name. Amen.